Welcome to the Marshall Pro Podcast. This is the Week in Sports Cars, uh, our weekly podcast that uh, looks at the world of international endurance racing with the help of listener questions. So as many of you that follow the show regularly will be aware, uh, no Marshall Pruitt this week. He's taking a much delayed and much deserved vacation with his lovely wife, Chabron, and he'll be back with us next week. So this is another of what we did announce would be a fairly regular series of specials where uh, either I or Marshall are joined by a special guest. But before we get to who that's going to be, uh, we're going to say thanks, as we always do, to Cooper Tyres, to the Justice Brothers, and to TorontoMotorsports.com, uh, who help us bring this show to you every single week. And after all that's done, we're going to say hi to, well, delighted to have as co-presenter this week, Alex Brandle. Alex, welcome to the show. Hi, Graham, and uh, hi, Marshall, as well. I know you'll get, probably get a chance to, to listen into the, to listen into the show. I hope you're enjoying your uh, your little bit of downtime. Um, but it's great to join you, Graham. I I, uh, I do I do listen to your your musings over the uh, <laughs> over the the series of shows that you produce. It's great to be involved. Great stuff. Well, I'll apologise in advance. Um, sound quality may not be as it should be. Um, I'm in Monza for the European Le Mans series weekend. We've just got a slight pause for a red flag as we've started this recording. I don't think that session is going to get back underway, uh, but there will be cars on track uh, pretty soon. So we might have a little bit of background noise. Um, Alex, I presume you're at home. Yeah, I am at home preparing everything, obviously, to to go to Monza, where you will, I imagine, be staying uh, I for the will World be. Endurance for the World Endurance Championship next uh, next weekend. So I'll, I'll be watching the LMS race with interest, of course. Well, we'll keep an eye on that. We can come back to uh, the, the plans for WC with uh, the Inter-Europol competition team. Great start to the season, I think, from you guys. And we're paying close attention to what they're doing. They're here, of course, this weekend with their LMP3 cars. Before we get into the questions, a couple of big news stories uh, this week. Biggest of lots in the early part of the week, of course, was first sight of what I think most people agree is a fairly extraordinary looking Peugeot hypercar. Keen, from the racer's point of view, uh, aside from the blind, you obviously look at that uh, and it's got no rear wing. Your first impressions? It's a cool, it's an extremely cool looking car. And I think that the absence of the rear wing is an interesting one. Um, but for me, what what really stands out to me immediately looking from a from a perspective of uh, of a driver is you're allowed one movable aerodynamic part on those cars and the immediate question for me is if it's not the rear wing then what is it you know i, I don't i think the question really with that Peugeot is not necessarily the absence of the rear wing but what's there that's present that we haven't yet seen um it looks like an incredible beast it's obviously got that uh, that hybrid functionality across both axles and um and they're they're going for it aren't they they're really going for it as we would totally expect them to be doing uh, at this phase of the program I think the most interesting thing for me, aside from the, the aerodynamic solution, there's a lot more to learn there. And by the way, the answer to the question, what, you know, um, for those, a lot of people are kind of going, well, you know, it must be wrong. It must be wrong. Lots you can do with the floor of a car uh, aerodynamically. And the reason why that's not been done previously is because actually it was more or less outlawed some time ago. As long as they get to that, that kind of aerodynamic mix, that window that is being foreseen for the Le Mans hypercars and for the hypercar class, they can achieve that more or less any which way they will. And it's going to be very interesting to see how that plays out. We finally see this car racing at some point next year. And that, by the way, is the other part of it. We don't yet know when next year. Uh, we're told it will race in 2022. There is no guarantee as yet where and when that might be. That That's the first one. And I'm going to give a kind of slight pause here uh, before we get into the second one and there's a good reason for that and that what we're going to be talking about isn't quite yet out in the public domain and it will be by the time this uh, podcast is broadcast and we're about to hear what I think everybody whether or not that be from the point of view of myself and others in the media certainly the fan base and I'm guessing the answer is going to be in the affirmative and the positive from your point of view as uh, one of the nuts behind the wheel uh, here, Alex, is full convergence is about to be 
announced between the LMDH and the LMH cars across both the WC platform and the IMSA WeatherTech Sports Car Championship. And we believe that that will confirm it will be from 2023. Uh, do I need to ask what your reaction is? I mean, that's it's just brilliant for sports cars, isn't it? We have that convergence of the top class is so, so important. Um, from a driver's perspective, you're quite right. And it has massive implications for the driver market because, you know, over the years of sports cars, uh, I remember watching Alan McNish when he used to drive for Audi uh, would, would turn up. Uh, that's what, is that what he did? Is that what he used to do? as he'll endlessly remind you Uh, you you know used to turn up in a Daytona prototype used to turn up in a Daytona prototype uh, uh, Daytona but what I think the implication is going to be now are those um, are are those major manufacturers getting their elbows out over their pilot's time and basically putting their towel on those drivers for all of those races as they decide where it is they're actually going to try and race their cars why that has an implication for the driver market is of course it 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 massively increases the number of drivers that you need if you see what i mean if drivers can't do double duty between manufacturers one on IMSA side and 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 one on on the WEC side i mean obviously for the fans it's amazing uh the question will be of course um you know, how much sandbagging will there be? How much playing around will there be as they kind of take the first baby steps into converging what I think will be quite different cars in terms of their schedules around the racetrack? I think it's it's an interesting one, isn't it? It does mean that you can have manufacturers that can cherry pick some of the big races in the United States, or even for that matter, some of the bigger races in the World Endurance Championship. It also means manufacturers can run two programs with uh, their, with their um, let's face it, still very expensive cars, it means that we might see uh, an LMH manufacturer uh, with a representative of the Inverse WeatherTech Sports Car Championship. It's, it's exactly, to be blunt, what lots of people have been asking for for a very long time. It does, though, mean, Alex, doesn't it, that there's an awful lot to be placed at the door of what you've got to guess is going to be quite a complex balance of performance process. It's going to be, having been out on track with the Toyota now, uh, and obviously sitting inside an LMP2 chassis, which of course will be the basis of of LMDH, uh, specifically the the Acura, um, it will be it will be a difficult process to balance up those sets of cars. In my experience, those LMDH cars are rockets in a straight line, particularly in the acceleration zone in terms of the Toyota because of all of its uh, hybrid functionality, et cetera. Whereas those LMP2 chassis are very much still, or, or LMDH chassis as they will be, are very much still in that high downforce prototype mold. So it's going to be really tough to actually, uh, you've got a bit of mini Mustang going on uh, <laughs> out there with uh, with how those cars are going to be balanced together. Could be an interesting one. Let's get some questions because we know you're a professional racing driver. There's nothing that professional racing drivers like more than questions about themselves. We know this. We know this well. <laughs> So let's kick off with the what, what, let's get to the searing, difficult ones to start with. Um, Alex, Damien Peachman asks, can you tell tell us what some of the more questionable hairstyles you've come across in racing? I don't think he's talking about yours. That would be unfair. And not about your dad's I, eye. Although, you know, that, I, ha- that, that, I have had a questionable hairstyle. I, I do have a questionable hairstyle because I get really bad helmet hair. And if anybody's ever noticed me doing an interview straight out of the car, I have the full the full static hair going on. Um, I don't know. Pixie like? like? Would we say pixie like? Yeah, uh, maybe potentially. I don't know. But um, I, I had a conversation with my teammate last year, Ryan Cullen, about the the fastest drivers in the paddock who don't look fast. And uh, and I, and I do I do think uh, in a mod in a modern world you you can't really say who looks fast and who doesn't look fast. But I, I did have a very private conversation with him about the guys that surprise you or the drivers that surprise you by jumping in the car and going, sure, surely that bloke's not that quick. Um, but oh God, oh, questionable hairstyles. Um, I don't know. I, I, I really I really have to think that one through. We're all we're all pretty binary. I know Will Stevens 
absolutely hates not having because if you put hair gel or any kind of product in your hair when you when you put the helmet on of course you live with it um i remember jacques villeneuve signing a autograph for me uh back in his williams days when he had the purple hair and he was holding his yeah. helmet at the time i never forget his helmet completely purple inside <laughs> you know um but uh yeah i think I mean, we can put that down as questionable that 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 i think it's fair to say that was questionable yeah yeah i think i think potentially that could be that that could be the worst that could be the worst hairstyle i've ever seen but he's obviously not uh not active now so i guess i'm i guess i'm swerving that one a bit go on here from james counter who asks not dissimilar to the point we we made just a little earlier talking about the persia and the lmd the lmdh lmh conversions James asks, what's it like at the moment being an accomplished driver in LMP with all of this around the corner? What can you do to try to put yourself in the limelight to outsmart the competition, if you like? I mean, there are several effects that are that are going on right now. Firstly, uh, it, it's incredibly exciting because we all know, you know, I've been working on LMP racing for 10 years now uh, and been pounding away at it, often with a not a lot of upside opportunity really um you know there's been at times for three manufacturers in mm-hmm. the top class at times one uh, and then a bit of stuff going on in america but we're all you know looking forward to this kind of promised land if you like uh, and can't wait for it to come of not only uh, multiple manufacturer sports cars but also customer sports cars with a badge customer lmp cars with a badge which i think is almost equally important because with those badges that notoriety comes interest with that interest comes marketing spend even from private firms and private uh, sponsors so that's incredibly exciting Uh, the flip side of that is the competition has become very fierce and i don't mean necessarily greater because the competition's always been extremely high in LMP racing. I mean, there's a little desperation going on. Okay. Um, and, and you can see that in the way that some drivers are, are racing out there. Drivers who you, would, who you would think, you know, wouldn't necessarily be those to get into incidents are getting into a few more. There's that kind of grabbing uh, towards it. So I think, you know, t- to answer the final part of the question, all you can really do is, take that experience use that experience and and be fast and then try of course to uh to network to network and to to make those moves and 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 so people who are running these programs understand you as a person not just a a name on a timing screen it's it's a great point you make i had a conversation within the last week with a younger driver than yourself um talking about exactly this this point and the counterpoint they're offering was like you know we've been told that everything depends on our latest you know race results and that word the desperation word i would think that's pretty probably pretty accurate for a lot of these guys you can see the doors closing on some of those drivers as more rumors come around and we start to see drivers actually named against cars etc etc that silly season, you know, where we, you know, we in the media are guilty of it, where we start to kind of mention who might or might not be linked in with it. Helpful? Unhelpful? I think it's a good challenge, you know, because um, with all of these high level programs, you've got to be the kind of person who is going to jump in that car and keep your head on your shoulders when the moment comes. Yeah. And if you can't, if you can't keep your head on your shoulders with the opportunity of the drive in front of you, how are you going to do so? You know, how are you going to keep, you know, calm and with your head underneath you and deliver the result that's needed when you're actually sitting in that high level race car, when you're actually leading Le Mans, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and I think that those are the critical moments and those teams are looking for the drivers uh, who not only have the speed, but just have that little bit of uh, experience and composure to be able to to deliver in the moment. And so it, I found it a very kind of exciting uh, personal challenge to, you know, almost let go of that, of the, how much opportunity there is out there and just focus in on giving my own best performance uh, each each race. Uh, Matt Hawkey Hawkins follows that one up with a pretty, bl- uh, pretty blunt question, which he is, can we, can we expect to see you out there in hypercar? It, I think he'd like he'd like to name names, dates, and uh, programs. But how is that that kind of 
process because you're clearly part of that process how is that going is it a is there a series of positive discussions underway at the moment yeah there are there i'm i'm having multiple discussions at the moment um with teams regarding regarding hypercar programs on on both sides of well, hypercar and lmdh programs on on both sides of the pond um i like to think i'm performing um i know of several lists they call them lists that are that i'm on and have continuous dialogue with with several of the decision makers but uh, there are a lot of managers out there and uh, a lot of a lot of drivers wanting to wanting to get in those cars i think well actually it was my teammate renga van der zander the other day who said to me you're a guy who should be in one of these cars so if you're not in one you're the worst salesman ever yeah thanks very much Renga. but but you know it that was really heartening actually and it was really kind of him you know a driver of his stature to say to say so um so yes, uh, I'm working on it, but uh, obviously nothing that I would announce any, anyway. Those those programs are all big enough to be announcing their drivers all in a all in a tranche all together. Uh, but I, I have nothing to announce just yet. Fantastic, and, and sticking with the kind of high level, top quality, uh, motorsport based uh, questions, we've got one here from our good pal Right Turn Lover. Uh, it says it appears as if having a sustained career on Twisk weekend sports cars is dependent on having a pet. Do you have one? And if not, would you acquire one? And which, if obviously um, an offer came forward to be a permanent presenter at Twisk? It's a yeah. It's it's somewhat it somewhat bases itself around an assumption that the desperation that D word again is. <laughs> to continue presenting this and this is yeah this is now my my career this is now my career direction um i i so this is going to really upset viewers or listeners i should say uh because i've i've never had a pet I, well i lie i owned a fish called I, I, sonic you owned a fish called sonic i owned i owned and owned in the loosest sense he was right. a he was a you know he, he was a he was a real yeah, he didn't. He didn't last long, unfortunately. But yeah, so, because, you've been following it the, this through the process of first discussing our uh, sometime question preparer and co-presenter Ryan Kish and his pet history. It's not. It's not pretty. <laughs> It's not you know, pretty. Not, I think there must be an FBI file somewhere about that. So, so, <laughs> so what you're telling me is you you killed Sonic or? Uh, yeah, Sonic died. I wouldn't. I wouldn't extend. I mean, I can't be held responsible. Um, yeah. But I mean, I, I did everything I was supposed to do. But sometimes these things happen. But you know, it's it's a question What's of having a. Just just going to write this down. Alex not responsible for death. <laughs> Fish. Okay, just made that note. That's fine. <laughs> that's good. That's good. As long as we've got, as long as it's recorded now. Should we, but, should um, we just draw a veil over that or flush it down the top? Whatever you do. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, I, I, I. So it's, it's, a, it's having a globe-trotting uh, parent uh, group, having a globe-trotting family. Uh, we never, we never thought that we could adequately care for an animal. There just weren't enough of us in one place at one time, uh, where the animal might be to actually look after it appropriately. And I don't know, maybe that's what happened to the fish. I don't know. I'm not prepared to, I'm not, not prepared, prepared to, to incriminate that. myself on that one. <laughs> take, take the fifth. I think we would say there. Um, <laughs> a couple of questions here on a similar kind of theme. Damien Peachman says, Alex, which events? that you haven't yet done would you like to do oh blimey um i would love i would love to do the 500 i would love to race if i ever got the opportunity to race the indy 500 i would wow. i would grab it with both hands um i would love to do a, a road course race in nascar okay. uh, um that is that. I mean, I watched uh, who, uh, now swiftly becoming a mate, Kyle Tilly, mm -hmm. have a have a good go. And I've been watching his, uh, you know, Cup Series uh, debut and and, uh, and uh, continued races with great envy. So I, I'd love to try that. Um, I I've done most of IMSA. I've done most of uh, of the European sports car stuff. I've done the Nurburgring 24 hours. I love all of those events. 
Uh, I think I think those those are really one. Yeah, I'd love a crack at the okay. 500 and and a and a NASCAR and a NASCAR event. But I think you know the oval stuff is its own animal. I think I'd like to jump in one for for a road course race. Certainly. Similar thing actually from the uh, Spaniel. He's uh, goes under the moniker here on Twitter. What is your favourite race ever in any category you watched but not been participating in? Oh, well, I mean, so the Monaco Grand Prix is obviously something that I, I, so it's my favorite race to watch right. must be, must be the one. Well, so, so the, to a category, I'm going to split hairs here slightly because I've oh. not yet, I've not yet participated in the Nürburgring 24 hours in a GT3 car. Okay. I've done a GT4 and that for me is one of the greatest sports car if not the greatest sports car race in the world along with probably you know le mans and daytona mm-hmm. and and that is probably my favorite category of racing shall we say that i that i've not that i've not competed in uh, would be gt3 at, at, at the n24 that that knits beautifully with the second question from our Swiss, Swiss friend, right turn lover, who says, "When will we see Alex back on the ring, racing, not commentating? And do any of your elderly relatives want to want to tag along again?" So what I would normally do, yeah, yeah I think you know, I, I was out with him. I was out with him earlier on in the week uh, in an E-type. Jam, We're coming to that. Actually. We're coming to that. Yep. Yeah, it was unbelievable. But we'll, we'll get around. To, we'll get around to that in a minute. I normally. You know, in my plan, uh, after we we were lucky enough to win uh, with Aston Martin in GT4, I kind of mail shotted a load of the the team bosses of the GT3 cars uh, to see if I could find my way in, and then everything sort of collapsed into into pandemic uh, at the time. Um, and normally, my plan was at the start of this year to rock up to VLN1 and VLN2, sort of unannounced, and try and find myself uh, or NLS as they're now called. Uh, try and find myself a berth for the, for the 24. Um, I, I haven't been able to purely because we've been not allowed into Germany without an un, without yeah. a kind of a an unnecessary reason. But certainly, as soon as I am allowed back in to Germany, I will I will literally sh- show up at the <laughs> ring and 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 walk up and out. There are so many teams there. And it really is a place where if you keep your license up to speed, you know, there will be somebody in the pit in the pit lane that needs a driver of decent of, of decent standard. So um yeah, very soon, very, very soon. Um I'm continuously working on on trying to get back to the ring. Uh I loved it there, had success there and uh it, it's uh you know it's a that kind of experience was a big part of what I did over the last sort of few years or so. So yeah, very soon. Moving away from contemporary racing, you've been carving quite a niche for yourself in the historic racing world with um, what's been, a, I think, a fantastic program. You can tell us a little bit about the program before we get into some of the questions about this. So I know some of those races went by the by because of the pandemic, but what are you racing and where are you racing it and why are you racing it? So I am racing really a collection of historic cars, mostly owned and run by a gentleman called Gary Pearson, who's a little bit of a legend if you're into that scene. Um, He's Jag uh, 3.8 straight six man really uh with with d types and e types uh, and some of the older stuff as well uh so i've been racing mostly his lola t70 uh, uh chevy engine uh five liter chevy engine v8 which is a monster of a thing and also uh e-type jags with various customers um and we've been all over the place. We've been to Goodwood. We'll be going to Silverstone. We've been to Brant Hatch. We've been mostly UK based. It must be said. Uh, the reason I do it are s- several fold. Firstly, uh, sponsorship is still a big part of what I do uh, in the racing world. And uh, one of my sponsors, Adrian Flux uh, Insurance, who are a, a very new for those kind of global uh based listeners are a very uk based insurance company but for modified and classic mm-hmm. uh and, and racing cars uh wanted to come with me they're norfolk based as well which is the area i'm from in the, in the uk uh wanted to come with me wanted to sponsor me but really uh wanted me to do something interesting and cool and, and something that would really you know capture the attentions of 
the people that they're targeting as, as, the, as their market. Um, so I came up alongside my uh, professional career in sports car racing with this. Secondly, it's awesome and I love it. It's just amazing. The amount, uh, the amount of people you meet, the interest of the cars, uh, and it's just a great place to be. Uh, I, I realised standing at the Goodwood Revival a couple of years back that, you know, the team bosses of about four of the sports car teams in the in the the World Endurance Championship LMP2 paddock, plus multiple members of the major manufacturers, were all standing there watching me race <laughs> because they're all there in their, you know, their E-Type or their Cobra or their Lotus Elan or whatever, having a bit of fun, you know. And so it's, it's fantastic networking. It's fantastic racing. And I have a very, very uh, kind of, I would say, partisan partner in Adrian Flux who are just who just love me to do it. I uh, had the opportunity to do it and it all came together pers- uh, perfectly now. Josh Barrett actually asks here, is it a, what is the, in terms of the driving characteristics of what are a very disparate group of cars that can be carried over from a current LMP2 car? You know, it really makes you think about drivetrain. That's the, that's the overbearing thing for me. When you, have to, when you have to do everything in the drivetrain yourself and you start to have total control. And certainly, you know, you can start to think about where you're putting your gear shifts a lot uh, in those cars. Uh, and that crosses across to an LMP2 car. But obviously, it's, it's extremely, you know, extremely finite. And, and, and extremely delicate in an LMP2 car and that thing, you know, you're hammering the gears in. But I think, you know, that that car control just carries straight across. And I was extremely lucky in that I was able to jump in those old cars and be kind of closer pace with, with the tutelage. I must it must be said of Gary, who's just one of these guys who just gets it completely and can tell you if it's rich or it's lean by revving it four times and, you know, and smelling the fumes. Uh, it, 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 so... Yeah, it's been a joy and just a bit of, yeah, a bit of race craft as well in those big traffic. Because you have 50 cars on in the field as well. There's even more traffic than a than a modern LMP race. And they're really, you know, some of the drivers out there are kind of unapologetically, <laughs> you know, unapologetically chilled out and, and, and going at their own pace. And so all of that needs to be managed. And all of that, are, th- those are all skills that somewhere, somehow are going to come in handy. Um, yeah, Dad always used to talk to me about just building my database of experience, you know, mm-hmm. GT cars, old cars, new cars, single-seaters, sports cars, the night, the day, fuel save, dope fuel save, tyre save, you know, and it's all just goes in the bank of, of your knowledge and experience of, of, of racing. Uh, absolutely right, I think. Uh couple here about just that progression you talked about including that building up at the bank like try first here with one from Geronimo Lazos who says having driven the many different iterations of prototypes how would you describe the evolution beside the tech specs as a driver how would you compare the various cars you've reused is it really such a big gap between handling a GT and an LMP2 and an LMP3 I'm also curious about the specific training in the pit garage but let's talk about the cars first it really is. Um, and obviously, you're kind of to get within shooting distance of the pace is not so different. I mean, in terms of the evolution of LMP2 cars, since I started, uh, the front tyre is considerably bigger. The tyre uh, is considerably better as well. Uh, they obviously were became extremely powerful, which required a bit more of a V-style technique mm-hmm. in and then out again, uh, and then kind of dropped away in terms of power very recently, which then you need to start driving a bit more like a Formula 3 car again. We've had varying levels of downforce and all the different chassis uh, not only are are different in their in their levels of downforce generally, but in their balance. Sports cars generally tend to be locked in by the amount of front downforce they produce. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's not very variable. Um, whereas whereas the rear downforce obviously gives you generally, if unless you're Peugeot, have a rear wing. Um, so it, it, that will depend how the balance will shift as you go towards a low downforce setup. Um, you know, the jump across from GT is a totally different animal. Um, 
you know, a, a prototype is very pointy. You have that tiny gap between uh, the bro- the throttle and the brakes. A GT, you need much more rolling phase. The car needs to generally understeer. You've got to keep the car connected to the floor and you have all that mass. So it's just, it's a huge, it's a huge differential. I, I think it takes you a good couple of days to really get your head around a change, even with the best will in the world and, and all the help of a professional team. I guess, guess my kind of question on top of that is it's it's how easy is it to readapt to a limit? And in particular, readapt to a limit with perhaps a less capable car moving from an LMP2 or even a GT3 to something like the kind of GT4 spec or super GT4 spec that you race the Nürburgring. Yeah, it's interesting, actually, because the Nürburgring is a different animal in itself. So a GT around the Nürburgring feels like a prototype. And I actually was, it was very, very strange. I I just missed out on pole, um, actually, at the Nürburgring 24 hours. And all of the time I lost was on the Grand Prix circuit. Uh Because actually the time the time that it was taking me to figure out a GT4 car on a normal track. And then as soon as you got out onto the Nordschleife, it feels like a prototype and I was totally at home. Um, And so, yeah, the difference in grip level is not such a big deal. It's the difference in dynamics, which takes a bit of time to get your head around. Uh, Specifically cars that are very soft and that roll, um, because you, you need to be quite patient in allowing them to roll and set and then understanding where the balance is from there, especially when you've come, or indeed, you know, when Alex Buncombe, I remember, shared with me at uh, Road Atlanta in 2012. He was coming across from GTs. He'd only ever driven GTs. And, and he just couldn't get his head around the downforce and how it worked and, and, and how much quicker you could go in. And you could tell it to him a hundred times and it just, it just took him, he got, he got there, of course, it just took him a little bit of time to, to get up to that limit. And equally it takes you time to time to go back. So those dynamics are, are the real, the real thing, which uh, takes a, a big change. Mark Elkins asked a kind of, it's a, it's a variation on the same theme, but it's actually not about the cars, it's about the drivers. Mark says, as a driver who really does seem to drive or has driven everything, drivers on the way up always aim for the top to be a world champion. How do drivers adapt emotionally, I guess psycho- psychologically as well, to not getting to F1? Finally, there is a whole bigger race world out there, having to readapt, refocus, but also, as you know, we've already discussed, as a driver for hire. Yeah, it's an interesting one because I was obviously brought up in the I was brought up in the mentality that if you drove fast in a Formula Three car, you know, someone in a tweed jacket would turn (laughs) up and go, well done, young man. Would you like to drive my Formula One car at, uh, you know, Detroit next weekend Uh, or, you know, even in a sports car, you know, if you won, if you won. But back in the day, if you won the LMP3, the equivalent of the LMP, it would have been, you know, two litre back then uh, or, or, or something. You know, someone would rock up and, and, and offer you the opportunity. And I think that that was the biggest shock. For, and I say for us, because I mean me and my father as well, arriving in the, the world of, of sports cars now, it's just how much you have to pry, and, and, and indeed Formula One, how much you have to pry the door open with either money or leverage or something else yeah. to get yourself through. And, and it took us really until I was about 25, 26 to really be on top of understanding that. And that took a massive, that took a massive psychological shift for both of us, where we just kept on, you know, through my early career, we just kept on running at the door, delivering those good performances, and then sitting there, you know, holding hands around the phone, waiting for the uh, the manufacturer to ring me up to drive their amazing sports car. Uh, and recognizing that there, and not recognizing that there were sixteen managers that had already been through the, the office by then, and, and they'd already and they'd already signed their driver lineup two years ago, you know. And and I think that's and I think that's really how I've ended up kind of jumping between cars, but then not necessarily charging through to that uh, F1 or manufacturer seat. It is a fiercely complex and 
combative. I think you, you described it as an earlier process, isn't it? Ricky Zagata asks, moving away from yourself and your career, as somebody who's, again, he's uh, observed some of the race just about everything and just about all over the globe, is there a current driver or drivers that stand up for you for their abilities and willingness to race everything? Doesn't have to be limited to just sports cars. He says, hashtag me personally. He's been really amazed at the ability shown by Carl Larson. Anybody out there that you kind of think, yeah, they've got it. There, there, there are a couple of there are a couple of drivers who are are I've shared with who are extremely good. Uh, one of them is Felix Rosenquist, okay. who I think has jumped between a lot of different things and performed in all of them. Uh, another one of those is Antonio Felix de Costa, who I think you know from everything from Formula E cars into sports cars, single seaters, some GTs, DTM. You know it, he's he's really been uh spectacular i can't make too much comment over on the american side because i'm talking kind of my my peers day to day um you know guys like earl bamber and nick tandy on the porsche side are are uh, another set of drivers who i think are you know have really jumped between i mean you look at what nick was able is been able to do in a prototype been able to do in a single seater and then been able to do over several different iterations of gte car it's really incredibly impressive so there there are of course several drivers that can just that can just jump in and go fast aren't there in in every generation and i guess the point there is when you talk about antonio felix de costa and formula re and you talk about earl and nick in uh, what they did with the Porsche 919. These are not simple race cars to manage. These are not the kind of they're not plug and play. You physically got to manage those systems. Um, you know, as you go, it's why we we did see a bit of a change in the guard LMP1 with some extremely capable, slightly older drivers just deciding this was not a skill set that they were ready to. Uh, adapt to within the speed that that would have been required to, to see guys who are able to do that and consistently to go to and from those skill sets that is pretty impressive it, it certainly is and um, you know you can do it it just takes time and effort and application and i think you know you've got to really want you've got to really want to win you've got to really want to get absolutely everything out of the car to explore all of the car systems and really home home them right in to, to to where they need to be. And that's for, you know, whether you're dealing with a, you know, like you say, a hybrid powertrain in an, in an LMP1 car, car, or you're dealing with a complex traction control system in a GTE car, you know, that kind of continuous pursuit of the excellent are what, are what marks out those who I've shared with. I mean, Renga, who I share with this year, is another one who... Mm-hmm just won't take 95 percent as an acceptable as an acceptable answer and uh you know and it's it's great to to watch and 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 learn from those guys and uh and 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 have all of our experiences coming in together and try to apply that same um that same kind of intensity and attention to detail to to what uh, i'm doing with uh, with prototype cars now you wouldn't expect alex as to get to list the questions about your good self without there being a couple that come up about the reality you are a second generation racer and um happily as someone who's observed the careers of both uh, members of the brundle family in international motorsport both good blokes have got a great public profile um but david zitterbart says he's got to ask who's faster you or your dad <laughs> Uh, I I have I have no idea because I I didn't race uh, when we've driven in in recent times I've been a little bit quicker but he's sixty one yeah, you know yeah. I would lo- I would love to so, you say that like it's a bad thing <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, w- I would love to have have uh, and he's one of those he's one of those guys that doesn't actually really descend I don't think too much in terms of ability I mean he's just he's impressive it was only 2016 where I believe it was Tom Alleron he out qualified to take road wow. to the Mont pole 
<laughs> the guy who was then who was in a rebellion two years later in in the top class of the world endurance championship and so you know he's pretty impressive and he's pretty impressive again the other day in in the e-type as well um i would love to have taken him on in his absolute prime we're very very similar drivers um in terms of you know technique and strengths and weaknesses we're uh you know overlaying data as we have several times is is quite bizarre because the the tendencies are are the same even though he he drives in a in an older style um than than me uh which you can mark out from several things that stand out on the data traces and the way the car is uh, managed and manipulated but um i don't know is the reality now me but uh, when it, when he was my age, I, I have no idea. There's only one more about this because I'm sure this is the kind of thing you get a lot of. And it's um, Martin Harrison says, "How often do you talk to your old man?" He says about F1. He knows everything, and he seems such a lovely bloke with it. I mean, I'm guessing there's a lot of motorsport chat in the Brundle household. There is to the to the great annoyance and boredom of my of my well no not that's not quite true because my mum loves her racing as well specifically uh, specifically her sports car racing actually. Um, I should but, say by uh, the way for for the benefit of listeners by the way I've had the privilege of spending time with with your mum uh, with Liz uh, for a number of years. What a lovely lovely lady. You don't have to agree. You obviously do agree. But uh, what yeah. a lovely lovely lady and what a great influence I'm sure on your career. Oh, well, if a if a if a book was written about our family, she'd be the hero of the piece for sure. <laughs> uh, she she is uh, she's a bit of a rock that one for all of us as we've been through our various trials, tribulations, and and broken gearboxes. So um, yeah, she she's on it. But um, yeah, Dad. I mean, as I've started broadcasting about Formula One, of course we we compare notes um, in so far as we're allowed to actually. Um, because it's a slightly strange situation where I, in fact, work for Formula One themselves. Uh, and Dad, of course, worked for a broadcaster, Sky. So I am in the I am actually where the world feed is is produced. And Dad is, of course, working uh, from 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 site. And so there are certain things that I that I am told and I, that I see in F1 HQ that I I would not necessarily be not disallowed from, but I uh, would not necessarily be appropriate to to pass on. And so uh, I, yeah, I have to be a little bit, uh, I have to be a little bit careful about how much discussion we, that we have about some things. That, that, you know what? I'm going to leave this one a little later, but I'm going to ask it now because it's absolutely pertinent to this. It comes from Dan Rice. Says, Alex, you ever caught yourself repeating one of your dad's great lines while calling a race? Or have you ever heard him drop one of those lines and think, I wish I'd come up with that one? So, so this is a so people say I sound a lot like him and and um, Alex Jakes who commentates with me always says that when I'm standing across from you talking in the box it's not the case but of course when I pick up a microphone the slight intonations are taken out of the voice and the general tone is there and so it sounds very much that way um, what I what I resent greatly is um, uh, people saying that as people saying that I that I'm trying in any in any way to, to replicate his commentary. I'm, I'm definitely not. This is me. <laughs> um, yeah. But yes, I, you know, I have heard those lines all the way through, all the way through my life. You know, I've heard uh, the, the way that we describe things, the way that we describe racing, and and that kind of thing. And so even if they're not verbatim exactly the same. It, it's kind of inevitable that in the, you know, in the action of describing a race, mm-hmm. I am going to come out with that tone of, with that tone of commentary and those kind of expressions and descriptions. So yeah, of course I have, I have, and you know, I've, I've said for good measure in the commentary box and had to, and, and kind of swiftly tried to retract it and uh yeah i uh we've we've been there we've been there well i've had the 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 delightful privilege of sharing a commentary box oddly enough here at monza with you uh yes, for yes. the lms i just... was late i remember being late remember i uh I do. yeah, I mean, yeah. Great, absolutely great fun but uh, it's it's the, the great part of it is when you've got somebody that just adopts to a natural rhythm to it and it was not a surprise in any way shape or form when that part to your career 
uh, started to take off. And you know, I've got a couple of kind of questions about that side of things. Tell us a little bit about, you know, your level of enjoyment with that, what you get out of it before we come into what is quite a searing question from James Counter. I I do enjoy it um, just because I'm passionate about all sorts of racing and I um, I like to watch how the races pan out. Um, I think it's given me something extra, funnily enough, in terms of um, maybe a bit in terms of reading a race, but also in terms of viewing other drivers and seeing how they come across on in various different types of media, because obviously you have to pay more attention to those drivers that you're broadcasting about. And so the way they come across can be analysed. Um, but yeah, my enjoyment of that is amazing. It, it's a day job, which is weird. Uh, it really feels like a day job. Um, but what, what I'm really desperate not to do at this stage is become a commentator who drives rather than a driver who commentates. I'm definitely still uh, a race car driver first, yes. first and foremost. And I will never, ever jump across to that side of the box, which is the, you know, the hello and welcome side of the box. Um, <laughs> I, I, I'm always going to be, you know, a technical, technical analyst uh, from that perspective. Excellent. And uh, James Counter finishes this little strand with, now your commentating career has made it big time. How far below the bar is GG with the weekend sports cars? Oh, no. No, I thought, I, I, I believe I text you. When you were uh, when you were doing the the Asian Le Mans series with yes. Ollie Gavin to say you guys were you guys were very very smooth in the box. Oh, yeah, I, um, I, I, I love what I do. I'm very you know, like like you. I I'm in, in that kind of small percentile of humanity that is very lucky to be doing a job that you know you could only really dream of doing. And I never ever take it for granted. And the fact that I can actually share space with the likes of your good self and with Ollie and with Alan McNish and with other fabulous people, you know, who I've looked up to, you know, as, as, uh, as racing heroes, if you like, I, it's just amazing. So um, I'm also, I, I guess, a little bit of the mindset that I know people like what we do. I'm not that bothered by the percentage that don't. Um, you know, I, my, my view is I'm pretty clear about what I think we're trying to achieve in getting across uh, through a broadcast it's trying to get people to understand and enjoy more about what is you know you and i both know a very complex part of motorsports it's not single make it's not uh single race it's four races five races six races at nurburgring 24 races um over a lengthy period of time on a very complex circuit and that requires doesn't it that analytical conversational style that i think you nail it and that's why i think people come to your commentary and immediately like it and accord with it because you're giving them information they want in a time frame they want it. I think it's 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 great and sports car racing allows you guys to be to be even more like that because you have an audience who are halfway there already. Yeah. Um, I think the, the, the time. Yeah, to to actually to actually let the audience know, you know, th that little bit extra, and they really want and they really want to know it. Um, I think that it's it's a it's a brilliant it's a brilliant thing to be able to do and a brilliant thing to be able to share. The big the big gig, and I, I've actually seen a couple of um, you know journalists who are on a very different career path to me, but who have come up through you know the commentary ranks because it's a thing. Um, and are now making the jump across um, who, who make that next jump into the big audience stage, you know, and I've seen the journey of that and it's tough and it's, and it's not to be underestimated how hard it is to keep an audience who are not quite so, uh, who are a little bit more casual. Uh, and that's, and that's really hard. Let's finish it off with two things. One is we talked a couple of times about this extraordinary program, that you're doing with your dad with an extraordinary car. Tell us a little bit about the E-Type and what that's all about. Yeah, so um, that's that's the Jaguar Lightweight. Let me get this right. It's the Jaguar E-Type. It's the Jaguar Classic Lightweight E-Type development car. But what it, what it effectively boils down to is it's the car which they used to test uh, all of the relevant components when they were building their next oh, wow. set of continuation cars, which will come in pairs and they're now available through Jaguar Classic Works. Uh, so 
uh, and this really came through uh, all of the things that I've been doing with with Jag and uh, and racing their semi lightweights all over the place. Uh, and basically put a call in to, to a guy called James Barkley, parked up on the side of the road in Spain. I was on my way to a tyre test um, for, for Goodyear. And I just said, look, you know, I'm racing a load of classic cars and I'm racing a load of Jaguars. I just like Jaguar to know that I'm doing it. And uh, and, you know, if there's something that comes up, then that'd be fabulous. Like, I'd love to get involved. Um and so a little while later, a gentleman called Kerry Wilson got in touch with me um, from from Jag Classic and said, you know, would, would I like to drive this car? Would I like to bring Dad along? And uh, and we'll go and race it at the Silverstone Classic. And of course, uh, as on that program that I that I previously told you about, the Adrian mm-hmm. Flux are main sponsors of the Silverstone Classic, so it all works together perfectly and um, we're just beavering away on firstly de- developing that car a little bit uh, and then secondly racing it hopefully to, to success at the silverstone classic so that's that's that program fabulous stuff there is one final question and uh, that question comes from alex eichmiller and that question is alex brace yourself what's the one question we shouldn't ask alex brundle is your dad here this weekend? <laughs> <laughs> Alex, that's been, that's, <laughs> I'm sure that comes up a lot. <laughs> it does. I know I, we, it's a, we should inform the listener who's not who's not on top that this is a running joke between me and, and Graham. Uh, well, it's, I think it's a joke for Graham. I'm not sure it's a running joke for me, but it's it's a it is a it's a continuous question that uh, that I've I've enjoyed enjoyed and endured uh, yeah. through my through my racing career. So I will, uh, I will, yeah, there we I go. Will, I will admit to actually having your race engineer ask you that question whilst you were lapping Le Mans once, but. Uh, <laughs> amongst other things alex that's been better part of an hour of pure pleasure frankly with um range of questions around a whole range of stuff to do with your current career the future career that i know must be coming exciting times ahead with uh le mans uh hypercars and lmdh cars both sides of the atlantic i'm sure we're going to hear much much more of that we want to hear more about the historic racing too and I'll be seeing you here in just a few days' time with the Inter-Europol competition team. Looking to go better than two already impressive, I think it's two fifth places, hasn't it been so far this year? Um, yeah. With the, uh, with the, um, the Norwich City liveried, I think we'll, we'll, like, we'll like to call that uh, Inter-Europol car. Um, and on to better things. We'll leave it at that for the moment. Um, and I'm going to say goodbye because I've got to go and write about the story we've already talked about that's going to land on the desk here in just a few minutes' time. Um, I'm going to say thank you very much indeed to you, uh, Alex Brundle. Thanks to uh, Marshall Pruitt for allowing this to happen by going on holiday and giving us the opportunity for another special guest. We always say at this stage of the show, thanks very much indeed to Cooper Tyres, to the Justice Brothers and to uh, TorontoMotorsports.com for their continued backing for Marshall and my efforts for the Weekend Sports Cars and the IndyCar podcast that come from it. I've been Graham Goodwin. He's been Alex Brundle. Uh, this has been the Weekend Sports Cars, and we will speak to you next week.